Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology OCAP support view podcast. Each week, we take a high yield topic and talk about the why and the how. Today, I'm your host, Ben Young, and we have back again our special guest host, Dr. Jonathan Trobe, who is the head of neuro-ophthalmology at uh, the Kellogg Eye Center at the University of Michigan. And, you know, he's already done a couple episodes for us, but there was very popular demand to bring him back. So he came in on a very snowy uh, Sunday morning to come and teach us more about tips and traps in diagnostics and neuro-ophthalmology. Welcome back, Dr. Trobe. Great to be here. So we've got a few cases that we want to go through, and I encourage you, as we're going through the cases, to think for yourself what you know what might be going on, what next step in diagnosis that you want to go through, and then Dr. Trouble will be our guide into how to into how to not fall into common diagnostic traps within neuroophthalmology. So without further ado, we can get right into the first case. So the first case will be a 65-year-old woman who has new intermittent horizontal diplopia over a few weeks. There's no relevant medical history for the patient. So, you know, I go into the room, they're in my clinic, their exam is normal, except I find that there appears to be a comitant esotropia at distance, but then their alignment's normal at near, but every time I try to measure them, I get a different number. And there's sometimes even at distance, you know, there's none of that flick when I'm trying alternate cover and cover and cover. So, you know, it seems really inconsistent. What's going on here, Dr. Trope? You know, if you're if you're listening to this and you're thinking this never happens to you, I wonder who you are, because it happens to me. It happens to everybody. I think just about every resident that I've trained, and there are many, many of them, uh, have have fallen into this trap. And why is this happening? Because it could be well, any number of reasons, but the most common one is, and you guessed it is that the patient doesn't really know how to fixate. Now, why would that be? Why would somebody, Ben, why would somebody not know how to fix? What do we mean by even by fixation? Yeah, I mean, like, it's everyone, Dr. Trevor, that sounds crazy. Everyone knows how to fixate, you know, unless you're like amblyopic or something. We all use our eyes. I mean, yes, it comes naturally. I mean, you're going to put your fovea on the target. Right. But if your eyes are out of alignment and you are covering the fixating eye, it's possible that the non-fixating eye will not move to pick up fixation just because the patient is, you know, not, not, doesn't know to make the target clear. Huh. So you're saying they'll, they'll would still see the target, but not move their eye to sharpen the target? Exactly. Now you'd wonder why does this happen? I'm not sure why. But it happens all the time. So how do you get around that? The best way that I know is is you have to instruct the patient to make the target very clear. Okay, well, that exp- that does feel like it explains a lot of really like confusing cover and cover tests that I've tried to do. Or I put a prism and I try to get it and I just go up a little bit and everything's totally off and nothing ever makes sense. And this happens all the time. I mean, then when you start with the prism, You're now putting a prism in front of one of the eyes, and that makes it even a little more difficult for the patient to fixate. But but, but my my best advice on this is tell the patient at the very beginning that as you cover one eye, you want the patient with the other eye to make the target clear. Gotcha. Now, let's pretend that I now have used your advice and I got they have a 10-prism diopter Esotropia that's competent at distance, but then they have they still don't have an esotropia at near. 
Does this mean that they're faking it somehow? Like, what's going on there? Well, okay, you know, I'm going to ask you to back up for just a second, because one of the reasons that we just, we were just talking about why somebody wouldn't fixate, there are a couple of other reasons why this might not happen. And it's not because the patient doesn't know to fixate, but the patient can't fixate. And why would that be? Because the patient can't see, and therefore there's no value to foveation. It's not helping you. The other reason would be that the eye simply can't move to the primary position because it's stuck because of a tight, let's say, medial rectus or lateral rectus or superior rectus, or because the eye is paralyzed and there's a cranial nerve palsy and the eye will simply not move to where you want it to go. So that would be a very another very good explanation. So once you've clear, or there's a visual field defect and that visual field defect may be not interfering with acuity, but it is making it very difficult for the patient to find the target. So if you're thinking about why you can't get good fixation, think of those reasons. Wow. So basically, the, it's for cover and cover to work. The patient has to be able to see. They have to be able to move their eye. And they have to be able to find the target, i.e. not have a big visual field. Defect. Exactly. The cover test is based on refixation. If you can't refixate, the test is no good. Awesome. But, you know, coming back to this scenario, what about this difference between near and far? Like, what does that, does that mean anything? Yeah, very common. As all of you who are listening will know, you will encounter this a lot. First of all, you know, it should be no surprise that if a patient is looking far away and the eyes are esodeviated, when you look up close, your eyes are naturally esodeviated. So, of course, you will see uh, less esodeviation up close in many patients. So that's no, no big surprise. We, we tend to put names for this. We call it a divergence palsy esodeviation, as if this really gave us a big leg up. But the truth is, it's a very common pattern. It doesn't get you very far toward a diagnosis. So then what would you want to know then to try to get towards a diagnosis? Well, one of the things you want to know for sure is that the eye movements are complete. That is, the patient makes the full horizontal ductions in both eyes, uh, and that, that's, that's critical. Uh, the other thing that you would want to know is, for example, does the patient have some kind of problem with uncorrected hyperopic refractive error, which would, could certainly give you not necessarily this pattern, but certainly could account for accommodant esotropia in, at distance. Uh, this is a trap that you can fall into easily if you have a young patient who now newly, uh, but but maybe not a child, a, you know, a 22-year-old or something, uncorrected. I mean, I, I, I'm a hyperope, and I'm at, in my 30s, you know, I'm finding that I have blurred vision up close. I don't even realize that I'm a coming-out-of-the-closet hyperope. <laughs> but, I mean, but, but I, we had one of these a few weeks ago in the clinic. It's a patient who didn't know she was hyperopic. Wow. And she's getting esotropia, and, you know, we retinoscope, you know, how long does it take to retinoscope a patient? Mm. Depends on the... <laughs> depends on the, the right, it depends the, on who you are and how much training you've had. Uh, the residents here at Michigan, they know that I will get on their case if they don't have a retinoscope in their back pocket. Anyway, get that retinoscope out. Make sure that there's no uncorrected hyperopic refractive error before you dismiss hyperopia or uncorrected hyperopia as the cause of new ESO 
deviation. Uh, yeah. So that's one thing, yeah. That might save some people a trip to the emergency room, huh? By all means. And in fact, we did a little study of that here at Michigan. We looked at errors made by by physicians in the emergency room, non-ophthalmologists, and we found that competent ESO deviation was one out of 10 of the cases of diplopia that came into the emergency room during during a period of five years was one of 10. And those patients were getting CT scans for competent, uh, either decompensated ESO deviation or even hyperopic errors that were missed. So competent esotropia has a great significance. By the way, let's review what competent means. Yeah. Competent means, yeah, that the misalignment in is in all the relevant positions of the same degree. And that we have to say all the relevant positions because it's very important. If you have a horizontal misalignment, what you really care about is right gaze, left gaze, and straight ahead gaze. And if those are pretty much the same, you have a competent ESO, and that has much different significance than an incompetent ESO deviation. So we, we this this is almost like first grade stuff. When you if you're a resident, you are or should be learning this distinction. Incompetent ESO deviation, big difference. That could be six nerve palsy, could be a tight muscle. Uh, myasthenia gravis, any one of those kinds of things, much different workup. Yeah, the hyperopia matters less there. Yeah, or uh, some of the other causes of a common and ESO, which might be spasm of the near reflex. You want to consider that too. Um, so those, those, that's an important, kind of, these are all the things that come up in a case like this. There is one other consideration here that bedevils all of us, and that is that if if you develop ESO deviation that you didn't have before, and it's competent, and even if it has this divergence palsy pattern to it, it could be that you have a fusion breakdown for some reason. You know, fusion, fusion, fusion. We, we talk about this being a pervasive idea in ophthalmology. If you cannot fuse, and what is fusion? Fusion is the ability to keep both foveas on the target when you are looking under normal viewing conditions. That's you know, that's that's what fusion is. And if it breaks down, you got to think why. What are the reasons why fusion breaks down? One would be that you're getting old. Like me, I mean, fusion is labile with age, breaks down. The other would be that you don't see well in one or both eyes. So then you don't have the 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 impetus to keep the eyes together, which, by the way, is not a natural function. The eyes love to go out of alignment. So you have to have good vision in order to maintain that. Another and, and, and one of the causes that we see very often goes is right in your field, Ben, which has to do with a, the, a, with a foveopathy. If you get some kind of a thing in the fovea in one eye and you get an isoconia, so you're seeing one eye has a micropsic vision and the other does not, or metamorphopsia, then fusion is going to be at risk. And that will make it difficult for you to keep your eyes. And usually what you get is a very small misalignment of the eyes. You've seen this. Mm -hmm. And it's impossible to palliate. You know, we spend... And by the way, those patients should not be operated on because it doesn't work. Eye muscle surgery. Prisms do not work. You can try them. If somebody comes in to see you and they have a fistful of prisms or a bag full, they come in with a grocery bag full yeah. of full of glasses with prisms, and you see that one eye has a visual acuity of about 20, 30, 
and the other eye is 2020, and one eye, check to see whether one eye is micropsic. How would you do that, by the way? Well, you just have the patient look at, at the Snellen chart and say, compare the size of that, what you see up there on the chart with the, what you see with the other eye. And they'll say, gee, it's a lot, it's a little distorted and it's a lot smaller in one eye than the other. And you say, okay, that's why you're getting diplopia. That's why you spent $10,000 on these prism glasses. Exactly. Huh. Well, these are, these are a lot of at least cost-saving measures for the healthcare system that we, we are discussing. So. And watch out for the trap of operating on those people. Yeah. Because they could, so, so the scenario you're illustrating is they could come in with all these prism glasses and they could measure as having some kind of, some DV, exo or ESO deviation, but they're not having double vision because they have like a sick nerve or something like that. They have it just because their fovea is off in one eye. Yeah, I mean, you, uh, there's no reason why you can't have more than one thing. So that this is why you've got to make the distinction between comitant and incomitant, because the people with fusion loss, those will all be comitant. Gotcha. And, uh, and that's, a, that's really an important distinction. So if you get nothing else out of listening to me or to both of us, comitant versus incomitant. That's everything. North pole and south pole. So I can't just measure in primary gaze. That's right. That's right. Well, let's move on from the efferent pathway to the afferent pathway. So we have a, let's talk about another patient, 25-year-old woman, comes in with vision loss in the left eye to your clinic. They have uh, had a vision loss for two days, and there is some mild pain in that left eye as well when they move their eye around. Again, they have no pertinent medical history. You find that their vision is down in the left eye. We checked, and they had a relative afferent pupillary defect in the left eye. And then, you know, they're, you, after you dilate them, their fundus exam is totally normal. And then the rest of their eye exam is normal. There's no, like, dry eye to explain the, the left eye pain, et cetera. So I'm a clever ophthalmologist. I will just send them to the emergency room right now for admission, correct? Right. Well, okay. <clears throat> uh, now, there is, again, nobody listening to this broadcast or this podcast who has not encountered a patient with these clinical features because it's very common. Uh -huh. And that's, of course, why we're talking about it. Mm -hmm. The way I usually think of this with our trainees is give me the four elements that you need to make a diagnosis of an optic neuropathy. Not necessarily optic neuritis, which is what you're all thinking, but let, let's just get to an optic neuropathy first. Mm -hmm. Because making the distinction between an optic neuropathy here and a retinopathy is critical. Wouldn't you agree? Right. I mean, you, you, you don't want to be doing all kinds of retrobulbar imaging on a patient with a retinopathy. That doesn't make any sense. We tend to think nowadays that getting, you know, imaging, it's so easy, it's painless, it's expensive, and it takes a lot of time, and it shouldn't be done if it isn't necessary. At the same time, you know, OCT in this setting, I think, is only valuable if you're suspecting a retinopathy. I don't think that it's valuable if you're, you're suspecting an optic neuropathy, which, by the way, means that you have to look in the fundus to see. And I'm sure you will be the first to say that there are things in the fundus that you cannot pick up with ophthalmoscopy, where you need OCT. Fine. Right, right. But if you can go strongly in the direction of an optic neuropathy here, you don't need OCT. For the listeners, why do you feel that in, like an OCT of the nerve wouldn't be helpful in this case? Because, you know, if you honestly, I don't think OCT helps you tell a swollen disc from what you can see with ophthalmoscopy. You should be good enough even in your second year in ophthalmology, to be able to tell if you have a swollen disc. Mm -hmm. 
you know, some people would dispute that. I just don't, I don't, I don't think so. Gotcha. Okay. So that's, that's, you know, one thing, but does that change, deflect our course from going to the emergency room? Well, let's go back to say what those four elements are so that you really feel secure. The first is some abnormality of visual function, not necessarily visual acuity. Uh, I'll still remember about 35 years ago when I saw a patient who just came back from a trip. Her husband was the chief resident in medicine, and he said, you know, my wife is complaining that she doesn't see well in one eye, but I measured her visual acuity, and it's 2015 in each eye. I mean, 2015. And I said, well, let me take a look. She had an afferent pupillary defect in that eye, and she had optic neuritis. But she was 2015. 2015. By the way, we did a visual field, and she did have some high threshold points that were not in the papillomacular bundle. Uh. So she had some very slight evidence of an optic neuropathy. By the way, she had an APD. Doesn't that surprise you that I barely got any measures of visual function abnormality, and yet she had an, uh, an afferent pupillary defect? Yeah, how is that possible? That's it, You know, I don't know how it's possible, except that obviously something's going on here that we don't fully understand or that we don't have access to. We cannot measure uh, very subtle visual dysfunction. The patient will tell you she has it, and then it comes up with that very, very sensitive, ultra-sensitive test, if you know how to do it. Mm-hmm. Which brings us again to back to case number one, where you had difficulty measuring alignment. If you don't know how to measure an afferent pupillary defect, you don't graduate. That's that's fair, everyone. You listen up. Um, do, you, do, you, do you want to go through like tips on how to do it? Okay, tips on, yes. I mean, these are the favorite traps in doing uh, in, in being accurate about measuring an afferent pupillary defect. I guess the first thing we should say is, what's the terminology here? Is it relative afferent pupillary defect or is it just afferent pupillary defect? At Michigan, we don't use the term relative. And why not? Because if you write the word RAPD in somebody's record, many people will think you're talking about a right afferent pupillary defect. Oh, okay. And the concept is an afferent pupillary defect is always relative. There's no such thing as an unrelative afferent pupillary defect. It's the comparison between the function in one optic nerve and another. Mm-hmm. By the way, that's going to be a little bit of a hedge here because there are there is another there are two other explanations for an afferent pupillary defect. Do you know what they are? No idea. Ben, okay, I, I thought you would say that. You're setting me up. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right. One of them is a massive retinopathy, which brings us to the question of why doesn't a retinopathy that isn't massive, why does it give you an af- why doesn't it give you an afferent pupillary defect? Right. Right. Yeah. Like let's say you know I've seen plenty of patients with like horrible wet macular degeneration or central serous retinopathy t- taking out a ton of their macula and they won't have an AP- APD. Yeah, with 2100 acuity. Yeah. Yeah, way worse than your optic, you know, your 2015 optic neuritis. Yeah, Yeah. right. The 2015 optic neuritis patient with an APD, you compare that with a central serous or a wet macular degen, and those patients don't have an APD. That has been one of the great mysteries, maybe Nobel Prize subject, I don't know, uh, as to why this does not happen with pretty, pretty substantial retinopathy. The theory that I subscribe to, and it's probably something that, could be challenged, is that when you get these bad maculopathies, you are essentially deforming the signal, meaning you're deforming the retina, but you are not uh, cutting down the axonal signaling or the neuronal signaling. 
And if you don't cut that down, then you won't get an afferent pupillary defect. So in other words, those uh, I think of those rods and cones like blades of grass mm -hmm. in there, and they're all going all over the place. And if you don't have them all perfectly aligned, you will not see clearly because the signal will be all messed up, but not reduced. Gotcha. You have to reduce the signal. So if you demyelinate the optic nerve a little bit and you still preserve some pretty good acuity, that signal traffic will not get back there. And by comparison to the normal nerve, you're going to have an pupillary defect. Gotcha. So like a retinal artery occlusion, like a branch retinal artery occlusion could, could. cause. Gotcha. Could, yes. I mean, that's where you're getting into, into the uh, retinal ganglion cells, which there it's much more likely that you're cutting down on axonal traffic than if you're talking about outer retinal disease. You know, we, we make a distinction in ophthalmology between outer retinal and inner retinal disease. Inner retinal disease often overlaps with what I do. Mm -hmm. Outer retinal disease does not. Yeah. That's you. <laughs> that's, 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 that's you. Right. right. Their ophthalmology. Um, okay. So that, that's super helpful. You said there's two reasons one can have an APD besides an optic neuropathy. Is the other one a bad cataract? Well, see, again, this has been giving us a setup here. You, you probably know that one of the very vexing things in ophthalmology is how come a dense cataract doesn't get, and it doesn't give you an afferent pupillary defect. Again, probably the same reasoning that a dense cataract is dispersing light rays, uh, interfering with focusing of the eye, but not cutting down on axonal traffic. Which brings up the, the thing that Ben is just waiting to ask, uh -huh. which is, what about blood? Uh-huh. So tell me what you want to ask about blood. Yeah, I mean, so the, can blood cause an APD then in that case, all these vitreous hemorrhage patients that I have. Yeah, Ben has all these vitreous hemorrhage patients and some of them have APDs and some of them don't. Which ones do? The really, really, really dense ones where the light is absorbed and there you have to say, okay, it's not getting into the eye. They're going to get an afferent pupillary defect. But I can tell you, keratopathy, no. And even a lot of hyphemas. you got to have a really serious eight ball hyphema before you're going to get an afferent pupillary defect. And very dense uh, corneal scars, no. Hmm. In fact, here's a, here's a real conundrum. It's possible that you will get an afferent pupillary defect in the other eye of a cataract. I don't know if you know that. That's been known for a long time. That's great uh, lore in ophthalmology. Is that something that you learned at Yale? I, I, yeah, I had been. Yeah, I had heard that at Yale. Yeah. Now, uh, by the way, it's not consistent, but it does occur. It, I've seen it, and it definitely happens. Now, why would that be? And that is that perhaps by scattering all those light rays, you are actually somehow flooding the eye with light, and the other eye, which is getting a normal signal or normal light input, is now the deficient eye, and it's getting an afferent pupillary defect. Wow, even though it's like a, like, so you could take someone who had dense cataracts both eyes, do cataract surgery in one eye, and after the cataract surgery, it looks like that eye is an APD. Uh, oh, well, the, the, you mean after you've done cataract surgery, the eye that you operate on has an APD? Yeah. No, it's, well, oh. now, see, that's a real problem, and that occurs all the time. That's uh -huh. a standard referral to neuro-ophthalmology clinic, as you know, uh -huh. is, oops, you know, I thought that patient with the 2040 acuity was from a cataract. Uh -huh. uh, there's still an APD in that eye, uh, or maybe there's a now an APD that I'm not sure I checked for before, uh -huh. and now it goes to us. And what do we find? The patient has a meningioma 
or pituitary adenoma, and honestly, this will make you quake because the patient will now come back potentially with a plaintiff's attorney. We talked about this a few weeks ago and saying, you know, we went a year here and this tumor got bigger and you didn't make the diagnosis. Gotcha. So if you find an APD after cataract surgery, it doesn't mean, oh, it's just because the light scatter. You should really get that. Yeah. Right. So then, you know, for this optic neuritis diagnosis, to go yeah. back to that, we'll finish up on this case. Oh, the traps yeah. for how to, how to do an afferent pupil. First of all, you must have the patient in a dark room. Many of our colleagues who are not ophthalmologists, they learn about afferent pupillary defects and test the swinging flashlight test. And unfortunately, they don't have dark rooms. So in the emergency room, for example, we're in the emergency room a lot in these trauma bays or regular bays. The light is bright in there. You cannot really do a good job there. You must have the contrast between your light and the ambient uh, illumination in the room. So that's another one. The second thing, the patient has to be looking at distance. And I bet you know the reason for that. Why is the, why if, why is it no good if the patient is looking right at your light? Yeah, we were talking about accommodation before. Exactly. The patient will get develop a near response, and that will cause pupil constriction. That'll get in the way of your test. So you got to have them looking at distance. The third thing is you have to have a bright light. Same idea. Big difference between background and your bright light. And the question is how much? And the answer is just enough. If you have too much, you can flood the system, and then you may not be able to do the optimal job. Usually, uh, a Fenhoff illuminator will be good, but you can use the uh, the light from an from an indirect ophthalmoscope. Mm-hmm. Okay, using usually those these uh, little um, uh, giveaway yeah, the pen light things. Pen light things are probably not good enough. Gotcha. Then the next thing you have to know is you really have to swing the light back and forth between the eye in a rhythmic fashion and look very carefully at the pupil. Of course, that is the second pupil that you're getting to. Uh, and go do it back and forth and back and forth to make sure that the response is consistent. And what response is it? Well, most people think that you are looking for a dilation of the pupil. This is where you will get the champion APDs. The pupil will dilate. But the ones that you don't want to miss are where the there is a consistent difference between the constriction of the pupil in the good eye, let's say the unaffected eye, and the affected eye. It, the pupil may not dilate. It may stay... It may stay the same size, but then when you swing the light back to the other eye, it constricts. Mm-hmm. So it's that it's that difference. Don't confine yourself to thinking that you have to see a big springing open of the pupil because you will miss probably the ones that we think we we really should be should be seeing. So that's very important. And then the last element, I mean, besides the fundus exam, is that you really need the MRI scan because if you're you, you need to know what kind of an optic neuropathy am I dealing with here and it turns out that MRI really does help us a lot here it's not perfect but it does help a great deal specifically optic neuritis should have an enhancing retrobulbar optic nerve meaning if you give gadolinium and you do good orbital views which you should do by the way one of the other big mistakes is that that people who don't know or if you just turn the patient over to the emergency room without instruction, they will get a regular brain MRI scan without fat suppression in the orbit and without good views of the orbit, and you will not be able to see whether the patient has an optic neuropathy that is either enhancing or not. Simply not a useful 
test. Happens here, even here at Michigan. It happens over and over again, unless we tell them this is what we want. So you specify an MRI brain and orbits with and without contrast? Exactly. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, so, and so those are the four elements of diagnosing an optic neuropathy. Do you have any comments on, you know, does this patient actually need to go to the emergency room? Can I get them an MRI in a couple of days? Yeah, this is a really hard question. You know, if it's relatively acute vision loss, there are two things going on. One, the patient is is very worried. And certainly I would be and you would be. You know, su- sudden vision loss in one eye or subacute vision loss is frightening. So, you know, you kind of want an answer, which means that you want pretty rapid scanning. There's another reason besides the emotional freight here is that if the patient has some emergent condition, you want to know what that is. Now, is optic neuritis an emergency? You know, in the past, we said, no, it isn't. Nowadays, the, the waters have been muddied by NMO. NMO, neuromyelitis optica, is hugely scary. And you cannot tell upfront whether the patient has neuromyelitis optica. One way to tell is with imaging, because there are distinctive imaging signs of neuromyelitis. Now, why do we care about an early diagnosis? Because it is thought that heavy early treatment against an inflammatory condition is important in determining the outcome here. Proof is still not really there, but I, I think you have to, to go with the current thinking, which is treat... Er- Early and heavy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Uh, yeah. And you. by the way, the imaging may not be declarative, in which case you need that antibody, which should be ordered if you have any suspicion. I usually base my decision about ordering the NMO on the imaging to see if there's anything atypical, unless there's something atypical in the history. Mm-hmm. But there are other people all over the country and all over the world who are ordering NMO immediately. Mm-hmm. And routinely on all routinely on all. And part of the reason for that is it takes about a week to 10 days to get back and you want to have that in your hand. Gotcha. Oh, do you, this is, I might edit like kind of splice this back into the earlier part. Do you have any tips on how to check for an APD in a patient with a lot of HIPPUS? Yeah. I mean, HIPPUS, you know, the term HIPPUS is very, very current. Everybody likes that word. It means that you, you have uh, essentially pupillary sphincter, uh, oscillations that are uh, pupillary unrest. And, you know, you're going to get fooled when you, if you do this just a couple of times back and forth, you may run into the idea of an unstable uh, pupil size. So the way to do this, the way to uh, eliminate that is to go back and forth and consistently look for that difference because that pupillary unrest should affect both eyes equally, not just one eye. And that's the whole concept of the relative we just tend to leave the word relative out with the understanding that it's understood. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to our third case. So uh, we talked about horizontal diplopia. Let's talk about vertic- vertical diplopia. So now we have a 50-year-old man who has uh, intermittent vertical diplopia and no uh, pertinent medical history. Their exam is normal. Um, otherwise, in terms of afferent function, they have full smooth eye movements. But then we find a small right hypertropia in left gaze that uh, that is worse in right head tilt than on left head tilt. 
Okay, so um, we got to admit that this is hard. Good. Okay, <laughs> this is not just me. <laughs> this is stumbling, stumbling, stumbling. I mean, for all of us, not just the first-year resident, not just the fellows. Uh, this is hard. I mean, I think that, honestly, diplopia is one of the hardest things that you have to deal with. It's a little bit like subtle peripheral retinal things. I mean, there you, there, the whole point is you've got to be able to see it. Uh, here, you really have to be, first of all, able to measure it, and second, able to analyze it. And, you know, Dr. Smith, uh, Lawton Smith, a famous neuro-ophthalmologist of past years of bygone days, used to say, do your measurements and then go into a back room where the patient can't see you rolling your eyes, trying to figure this all out, <laughs> <laughs> plotting it all out and trying to figure out what have I got here? Yeah. You know, I mean, the patient really wants you to be able to come up with a quick diagnosis. This is not easy. Vertical diplopia is a real, is a tough one. All right. So if this is a patient that you think has a, what, did we say left hypertropia? Uh, we'll call it a right hypertropia. All right, uh, let's call it a right hypertropia that's worse on left gaze uh -huh. and worse on right head tilt, but you're not sure. Uh -huh. yeah. You're almost there. You say, oh, I, I learned this. This is a positive three-step test. Uh -huh. And, you know, Marshall Parks modified Dr. Bilshovsky or Bilshowski's legacy, which is this three-step test which has to do with the measurement of the misalignment in primary gaze. It's a hypertropia. And then is it worse in one gaze direction or another? That's side gaze. And then is it worse in one head tilt or the other? And it turns out with, with reasoning that is a little bit difficult to come by, that that, if, if you have a right-left-right or a left-right-left, you're entitled to say, I think I've got a fourth nerve palsy. Now, what do I mean? Right means a right hyper. Left is worse on left gaze and worse on right head tilt or the other way around. You've got yourself a right fourth. Okay. Now, you're going to say, and I hope you're going to say, well, you know, how sure are you? First of all, you're, sometimes these measurements aren't consistent and sometimes they, you know, they don't always work out. But if you think you've got it, you're close. You're close. Now, what do you need to, to make the distinction here? between this and the other causes, and let's go back to what they are, of a hypertropia, new vertical diplopia with a hypertropia. Before you measure the three-step test, you are dealing with five entities that you want in your back pocket, always. And we go through this all the time. I almost ask you to recite it like, you know, I don't know, like the Pledge of Allegiance. Yeah, say grace by doing Yeah, these. or grace or something. <laughs> All right, what are they? And I'm going to have to come up with this and not make a mistake, Ben. All right, so fourth nerve palsy we've already talked about. Third nerve palsy. Myasthenia gravis, which is the great imitator. Skew deviation and an orbitopathy of some kind. When we say orbitopathy, we mean usually scarified or inflammatory so that the muscles just aren't going to work perfectly well. And that's the whole differential, though. That's... That is, by right. itself. Yeah, that's actually convenient. <laughs> yeah, so those five, if you can get those, let's do it again. Four, three, myasthenia, skew deviation, and an orbitopathy. That's it. Those are the five for an acquired hyperdeviation. All right, so now what you really want to be able to do is, be, is to pin down that this is a fourth. Uh -huh. So we say here, at least our, our teaching is, there's a five-step test. Not a three-step test. You got the three-step test. You think you're there. Uh -huh. The fourth step 
is the double Maddox rod. This is the one that usually we say, uh, that's for a second year resident. The first year resident, we'll, we'll, we'll give you a pass on that. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, finding the Maddox rods is the real challenge yeah. here <laughs> because they're always disappearing from clinic. Because everyone uses them so much. Oh yeah, yeah. right, right, right. Exactly. Everyone's using them so much. Yeah. Um, you know, we we um, we have a big consult bag that we carry around onto the ward, mm -hmm. and it it has Maddox rods in it at the beginning of the year. Mm -hmm. I'd say two months into the year, one is gone. Huh. Then you know we replace it, and then four months into the year, that that other one disappears. We replace that. So luckily, it's not as expensive as replacing uh, an in, a portable indirect. Uh huh. Um, or a portable uh, slit lamp, uh -huh. uh, but still, <laughs> still, yeah. <laughs> at least I know that's being used. Yeah. Okay. By the way, it's very easy to use once you know how to do it. For um, measuring torsional misalignment, you want two of them, uh -huh. and you have to put them into a spectacle trial frame, and then you ask the patient to look at a light, bright light, and you ask and you you ask them if the two red lines that they see, they should be seeing two, if they're Maddox rods that you're using are red, then they should be seeing two lines and they're going to be displaced horizontally because you have one eye higher than the other. And you're expecting them to say that one line that they see is tilted. Mm -hmm. And then you ask them to twirl one of the two Maddox rods until the lines are parallel. And if they are off center with one of those lenses, then you have a the expected X-cyclo deviation, hmm. which you should get in a, and that's virtually diagnostic, not perfect, but virtually diagnostic with the three-step test that you now got a fourth nerve palsy. Gotcha. Now there is one other little, I'm going to give you one other tip here that is really special and only for this broadcast, you won't, or top podcast, you won't hear it elsewhere. Ooh. And that, ready for this? And that is that if you're trying to distinguish a decompensated superior oblique palsy, which I think is probably complicated in why you have it. It may be a, de a degeneration of the complicated anatomy of the superior oblique muscle. That will always be, the misalignment will always be at least as great in up gaze as it is in down gaze. Whereas a traumatic or tumorous or inflammatory or ischemic fourth will be worse in down gaze. Huh. So that is that's the fifth step in the five step test branded at Michigan. Yeah, branded right here. Call it the trope. Uh, yeah, five -step yep. Test? Okay. Right here. <laughs> is, is any reason why there's that uh, up gaze down? You know, Jonathan Horton at UCSF, who's a brilliant neuroophthalmologist. He, when we published this paper, he asked about that, and I said, John, I don't know. I don't know. Okay. Well, on the maybe in a year we'll have an episode. What what uh, <laughs> will we figure it out? But that so that's a very cool five-step test. And the, the reason you're adding the fourth and the fifth step, so in part, it's because, you know, we're not always confident. It's actually worse than like right head, right head tilt, left head tilt. And I guess the other is it could be one of these other, you know, dangerous problems with one of the other five problems that you, you listed. Is that right? Yes. I mean, you know, the idea, if you fulfill the fourth step test, that is with that double Maddox rod, it's unlikely that you're dealing with myasthenia or an orbitopathy. Not absolute, but myasthenia typically doesn't do that. And an orbitopathy could give you an in-cyclo deviation just as easily as an ex-cyclo deviation. So you're nearly there. You know, you're going to look for the other accompanying features too of an orbitopathy, but that's pretty darn good. What you don't get with the four steps is distinguishing the 
acquired from the congenital decomposition. That you need the fifth step for. Awesome. Which is why, again, five steps, you heard it here. I, I love it, everyone. Yeah, hopefully it won't be on your boards, but remember it for real life for the actual patients. Let's move on to, unfortunately, our last case of this uh, series, which is a patient who presents with homonymous hemianopia. So it's a 45-year-old man. They had a motorcycle accident, head injury, and he recovers his full neurologic function, but after uh, after one month, but reports he can't see in his left hemifield. And he reports it's in both eyes. So being the wise, you know, comprehensive ophthalmologist that you are, you get brain imaging thinking that this will be homonymous, you know, hemianopia from some something in the the the, the right cortex, but it's negative. There's nothing there's nothing injured on there. There's no atrophy, nothing like that. And it's after a whole month um, after the injury. The visual acuity is normal. Eye exam is totally normal. But he just keeps telling you that he can't see uh, fingers displayed in his left hemifield. Is he malingering? All right. So, you know, this, this is, of course, is a real case. And it's one that I goofed on. It's one I made a mistake on. So that's one of the reasons, you know, your your own mistakes are the ones that you most remember for the rest of your life. Realize that this happened to me, I think, about maybe 35 or 40 years ago, and I still remember it. And I think as you're listening to this, you can think about the things that you learned that you could do better on, but especially the things that you could make a mistake on, because those are the ones that you really, they live after you. All right, so this one, this man who had a, let's say, a traumatic brain injury from a motorcycle accident, legitimately so-called, is, is reporting that he cannot see over there because he had a traumatic brain injury. Now, where would a traumatic brain injury give rise to a homonymous hemianopia? So we have to think about the localization of homonymous hemianopia. And you know that if somebody asks you on a board exam— to tell you the localization of homonymous hemianopia, and you say visual cortex, they, you are going to get dinged because that's not correct. What's correct is the retrochiasmal visual pathway, anywhere in that pathway, right? Anywhere after that, once you sort out the information from each eye at the optic chiasm, you've sorted it so that your vision is now represented in hemifields. In front of the chiasm, it's represented by your right eye and your left eye. Mm -hmm. And you don't deal with this stuff, but I do. Back behind the eyes. And oh, by the way, this does come up a lot. When somebody comes in to our emergency room and they say, I'm having flashes of light over here in my left eye. Uh -huh. And you say, oh, I, I can handle that. Just give me a dilated pupil and a good indirect, and a scleral depressor, and I'll find you the reason. Uh -huh. And you look there, and you mash on the eye, and the patient is complaining bitterly that he came in without pain, and now you've, you've inflicted pain, and you say, you know, I don't see anything here. And why is that? Because the patient's getting scintillations from the opposite visual cortex. He doesn't know that it's, only, that it's in both eyes, because he's only perceiving it in the temporal field of one eye. This may come up not unoften. <laughs> in the, I think there would be a lot of unnecessarily sore eyes out there. <laughs> right. I mean, this was with the best of intentions. And of course, you have to do it. Of course you do. Right. But it's going to turn out that, you know, a lot of people think scintillations, could that be from a lesion? Of course it can. 
You know, the way I think of scintillations is you're you're tickling an injured brain. There's an injured brain that's being tickled rather than devastated. So let's say you got this on your test, and we'll come back to the testing of a patient with homonymous hemianopia and how hard it is to disabuse yourself or the, get rid of the diagnosis of malingering. It's very hard. But let's just say you believe in this organic part, and you're looking in the back of the brain for where it could happen. It could happen anywhere from the optic tract to the lateral geniculate body to the optic radiations to visual cortex. Oh, there's a lot on the way. There's a lot there. There's a lot there. That's a lot of real estate. So, as it turns out, the most common cause for a traumatic brain injury to give you a homonymous hemianopia and one that I had not thought of is the optic tract. Huh. But why do their MRI not show that the optic tract is injured? And that's because that's what the hardest part of the visual pathway to visualize with MRI is the optic tract. Why is that? The optic tract is small. It's mashed between the temporal lobe and the midbrain, and it's very hard to see it. And radiologists do not look there because disease happens there relatively rarely. In trauma, yes, but otherwise not so much. So they don't look there. They're going to look at the occipital lobe, and they're not going to find anything. And so now you're back on your heels, and you're saying, hmm, I wonder, did I, you know, um, really, I mean, is this patient malingering? So now we come to the whole question of how do you examine a patient you think might be malingering and who has a homonymous hemianopia? And the answer to that is it's very difficult. I don't know a good way. There are some people who think that you can hold up a finger and tell the patient to please look at your finger and make them think that they're doing an eyeball excursion. Uh -huh. In other words, this is the whole idea of the card player trying to have you look, or the magician, have you look in one place when you're really looking somewhere else, which is the sleight of hand. Sleight of hand, which is exactly the basis of most of our testing for patients who have feigned symptomatology that is relevant to us. Mm -hmm. I find it very difficult. I, I, I really don't know. I don't know. I, that is not true, by the way, of bitemporal hemianopia. Bitemporal hemianopia, do you know the trick, Ben, for how to... No, what, what's the trick? Well, the trick, and see, Ben actually does know this, but he's pretending he doesn't. <laughs> the answer is that we, we take most of our patients directly to the visual field machine. You know, usually it's going to be a static perimeter, mm -hmm. and there we test them monocularly, and they come up with a bitemporal hemianopia. They must have it, then. They must have it, of course. It looks beautiful. Yeah. Which is a reminder that you can fake anything. You can fake virtually any visual field defect. We tried this years ago with some of our technicians. I, I, I said to them, go in there into the perimeter. I want you to fake a good nerve fiber bundle defect, like a, an arcuate defect. Beautiful. Perfect. I want you to now fake... Uh, Homonymous hemianopia, perfect. Bitemporal hemianopia, perfect. Binasal hemianopia, perfect. Okay, so what you do is you test the patient to confrontation with both eyes open. And the patient says first, with test them monocularly, and they say, I don't see over here uh, in the temporal field of my left eye, and I don't see in the nasal field of my right eye. They don't, they don't see over there. Uh -huh. Okay. But then what you do is you cover, you oh, you cast them with both eyes open, and now, I'm, so, oh, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. We're talking about bitemporal yeah, hemianopia. Yeah. They don't see in the temporal field of their left eye, and they don't see in the temporal field of their right eye. Uh -huh. Okay. 
now you test them with both eyes open, and they sh if they continue to say, I don't see out here, and I don't see out over here, meaning in the temporal fields, you've got it. Because the nasal field should be covering for almost all of the temporal field of the other, the eye. other eye. Not way, way out, the, that little 30 degree, little tiny little piece out there. No, you don't want that. But test them near, you know, near the vertical meridian, and you've got it. So now you have it. And that is very good. By the way, the last comment on this I would say to you is if any of you are diagnosing strict binasal hemianopia as a neurologic problem, don't. That is 100% psychogenic huh. or functional, whatever term you want to use. It does not, there's no such thing. There's no organic lesion that gives rise to a strict hemianopic binasal defect. The patient might be faking it, or they may, you know, psychogenic, whatever. Yep, it it, it's it's faked. Gotcha. You know, and you don't like to put that diagnosis on people because it's not good karma. Mm -hmm. But you know, we we are obligated. I will tell you, there there was one. I'm going to go back to this, which is the, you know, there's some other things that you can fake. There was once many years ago a lawsuit that I happened to be an expert on. Or I, I was called to consult on. A patient came to the emergency room having been in a car accident and complained that he could not see out of one eye. Okay. The resident and the fellow in ophthalmology were called in to examine the patient. No light perception in the left eye. Normal vision in the, in the right eye. Normal visual field, even a formal visual field in the right eye. No light perception in the left eye. No afferent pupillary defect. Uh-oh. Fundus exam normal. Discharge diagnosis, traumatic optic neuropathy. Wait a second. Can you believe it? I mean, the, the MRI, the CT scan, and the MRI scan were normal, which can occur for sure in traumatic optic neuropathy. They knew that. Uh -huh. No afferent pupillary defect. No light perception. OCT, let's say they got an OCT, which would have been silly, but they, they, they got it. And nothing. So this gets carried up the ranks to the insurance company, and it goes into a lawsuit in which the patient is claiming I'm blind in one eye. Patient comes back to the clinic, same findings, NLP on that eye, diagnosis, traumatic optic neuropathy. There's a big problem there. Big problem. So in other words, you have to be ready to make a diagnosis of malingering, which is a tough, kind of harsh term, or psychogenic vision loss or functional, whatever you want to call it, when it's appropriate. So do you have tips on how to test in that scenario? To, to, is, it, is it just the afferent pupillary defect is enough? I mean, that would make sense. Or let's say they were like light perception or like, you know, 21,000 vision. Do you have any tips on what to do at that point? Or how to, how to make it obvious that they're malingering, yeah. I suppose? You know what? I used to think that I had easy ways of doing this. Um, you can make the patient who may claim that they don't have, not, not, not no light perception, but poor vision, you can do the, you can slip a prism down over one eye and induce diplopia, and uh, and the patient it doesn't realize that that's what's happening and is actually reading from the eye uh, that you know you know which eye it is because it's the higher image or the lower image, uh -huh. uh, and and that way the patient will be talked into. However, you know, the patient can, they get, the patients often get very clever about closing one eye and the other, and they quickly figure out what you're doing. And at that point, you've lost your rapport with the patient, 
And so that can be easily be, so those, all those tricks will ultimately fail with somebody who's very clever. Gotcha. Yeah. So basically, discovering someone's malingering is difficult. Just coming back to the um, this homonymous hemianopia case, was it like on retrospect looking at the MRI that you figured out that it was an uh, optic tract injury? Yes. Gotcha. I went back to the radiologist and I said, you know what? Are you sure there's no optic tract abnormality here? And he went back and looked at it and, and found the tract was thinned out on that side. And that led to a research project. You know, when, most of the research that I have done has been stimulated by something that I saw in the clinic. And I would hope that many of you would feel the same way, is you're going to come across problems that raise patients that were, you raise problems that have not been solved. You look at the literature and you say, gee, this has not been looked at. And then you say, could we study this? Could do we have the wherewithal to do it? And the answer might be yes. So I hope, you know, all of you, no matter whether you're in community practice or academic practice, you know, one of the things that we've learned over the years in doing uh, clinical research is that relying on com com community practitioners is a tremendous boost to research because, after all, most of the patients are seen in community practice. And they, are, they represent a larger cross-section. What we see here in our own academic centers, and you will be at an academic center, we see a very biased sample, right? It's, these are referred patients, and they, aren't, they don't represent the cross-section of, of what's out there. You know, I think this is hopefully inspiration to folks to not just take exactly what's in our textbooks or everything as like the end of knowledge, that we have to keep digging, dissecting into what we know to expand um, what we can do for patients, how we can diagnose patients. That was great, Dr. Trope. Do you have any more pithy wisdom that you'd like to <laughs> dispense well before we close? I'll tell you what my wisdom is. Keep up this wonderful podcast because we're all learning a lot from it. Well, thanks, Dr. Trope. That's super nice of you. Um, and, you know, we hope everyone, you know, appreciate Dr. Trope's time once again to to teach us uh, neuro-ophthalmology wisdom. And if he's willing, hopefully we can get him back for more episodes in the future. Thanks, everyone, for your time. Thank you again, Dr. Trobe. Wonderful to be here. And hope everyone has a good week. And one last editor's note. If you heard this episode with Dr. Trobe and want to get even more out of him, he developed an entire website called Neuro-Ophthalmology at Your Fingertips. It's a University of Michigan website, and I'll put a link in the description below. It includes discussions about all aspects of neuro-ophthalmology, as well as useful videos to help demonstrate some of the things you talked about in this episode and more. Check it out. It's totally free, and I think you'll love it.